Welcome back to another episode of Outside In. I'm your host, Wes Rashid. Today we have Asad Duna from Unmistakables, the consultancy that believes in the transforming power of diversity, equity and inclusion, which I can totally buy into, by the way. Hello, Asad. Hey, Wes. Thanks for having me on. So let's start off with your own background. I think it's really important to centre on that. Can we start by talking about your own personal journey? What was life like growing up for you? Um, Such a broad question because you want to go, well, it was great, wasn't it? Um, (laughs) So I grew up in London. My parents moved here in the early 80s. So I was born here. So was my brother. My sisters were born in India. And growing up in London was was brilliant. Like you just thought that's what that's what life is about. And you've got access to this great city and had a really good time. And I think as I got older, I started thinking, well, I think I'm a little bit different in many ways. And I think it was when I went to university, so I went up to Warwick, and I thought, hang on, not everywhere's like London, so I got out of the bubble. And I started to realise that actually I was not from the UK. I think I lived this life thinking, well, I must just be like everyone else and everyone else is just like me. And as meeting more and more people, I realised that wasn't necessarily the case. So... Then I went on to to live in Germany for a bit, worked out there, studied out there, learnt German, which was quite strange for someone who looks like me to be learning German. I think living in Germany then gave me another layer of, oh, hang on, you say you're from Britain, but where are you really from? And then went into the working world. So I can talk about that a bit later, but but growing up was was a good time. I think I didn't come out, so that was uh, something, and I think that was down to perhaps my religious background. Uh, and also coming from India, where at that time it was still illegal to be gay. But but all in all, I can go, had a pretty good upbringing. It's interesting, because what, what, what age were you when you went to Warwick University? Uh, so I would have been 18. 18, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so I had the kind of reverse okay. of you, because London is a diverse place. Yeah. And then you went to university. Yeah. Probably predominantly white. I'm just yeah. at a stab around about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I... well, it was Warwick's a very international uni. Okay. So, I think the diversity there was international diversity rather than ethnic diversity of British people, you might say. So, yeah, but I would say predominantly the area was predominantly white for sure, like middle of middle, middle of Coventry, not too far from Birmingham, but very different to London. I grew up in Exeter. Okay. So, obviously, the further you go out southwest. Yeah. the whiter it is. Right. It probably wasn't until my early 20s that I came and moved to London okay. where I saw diversity around me. And okay. I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. Yeah. How how do you define diversity? I think it's a mix okay. um, because the, the way that I understand diversity is that you're invited to the party. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a mix of people that are around you that you can relate to. Inclusion is something different, yeah. you know, you're being asked to dance. Yeah, yeah. So the there, there is this, yeah. right, exactly. So yeah. I think there is definitely a, a difference. I think what I probably felt when I moved to London is that I felt a little bit more included than I did when I was in Exeter. Interesting. Okay. Because my family is originally from the Middle East. Okay. You know, when I would go home, yeah. they're speaking Arabic. Right, okay. Of course, I've got my white friends. Yeah. Which were great. I had a great experience, yeah. don't get me wrong, Yeah. but they're speaking Arabic. And so I could sense that there was a difference in my background. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And also, I guess, in your your name, right? That That's also a cue that you, For sure. you're different. I remember a lot of people say, well, you know, when did you realise you were different? I said a bit older, but I remember very clearly one of my first memories was being at primary school. And the recept. I think I was in 
the reception area or something like that and someone said, oh, is Assad here? And I was like, who is Assad? Because at home, I'm called Assad. And so I was like, hang on a minute, this is a bit different. And then when I introduce people, I say Assad now, I have to co-opt it because it's just, it makes it easier. And a lot of people talk about passing, how that's, you know, you're passing to make it easier for yourself or for others or working through that. So, uh, or code switching as well. So I think that, that was for me. I don't know if you had the same thing. For me, yes. Yeah, very very similar experience to you. Mm. But um, you just kind of deal with it. I think mm. You just have to do that. Yeah. Um, and that's part of what we have to get on with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we, I'd love to, we, we talk a lot in our business about surviving and thriving. And actually, are you doing it because you need to survive or actually are you thriving at that same moment? There's different ways to look at that. I just want to touch on uh, something that you said before about you coming out. Mm. Can you share your journey there? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I came out in, in my 20s, mm-hmm. um, which by today's standards is quite late. I think people are coming out way, way sooner. Tom, Tom, you know, Tom Daly coming out on YouTube all those years ago when he was in his teens is a symbol of how accepting things are today. But it was, it's been, it's been an interesting journey because, as I said, I, I grew up in a Muslim household. Grew up Muslim, I would say I'm Muslim, and and that then puts you in two worlds. It puts you in a world where being gay isn't accepted, and then often in in gay circles, it's well, how do you hold a religion and and do that? So it's always been a bit of a journey to work that out and think that through and and just be at peace with that and uh, I think you said you interviewed Asma Khan someone like Asma is amazing because many years ago I hosted something called the Big Gay Iftar and I was looking for someone to cater it and Asma agreed to do it and it was just so brilliant because it was so accepting from someone who's so prominent in the Muslim community being really open providing food during Ramadan it was so important so there's been moments like that where my two worlds have come together and gone, wow, it is, it is amazing. And I'm, I wouldn't say it's easy by any means. You know, you said you grew up in, or your parents are from the Middle East. Like there are countries where it's still illegal, still very much banned, but just navigating that. And I think now we've got a word for it, right? We, we talk about being intersectional. I think when I came out, that just wasn't a well-known term. It was, okay, I've got this and I've got that. But yeah, always, always funny to reflect on it. Do you consider yourself a role model? I can't consider myself that. Other people can tell me that or or say that. Um, and I have had people say that, oh, you're, you're a role model. I think more so since I started a business. And certainly when I when I came out and, and it became quite public through some of the volunteering work that I was doing or some of the press that I was in, I did have people say that. But um, it doesn't always sit that comfortably as a term for me. Is there any advice that you can give to you know, other gay Muslims to stand up and be heard? I would say find community, right? I think I remember it felt very alone at times. There was uh, people often talk about, you know, trying to pray the gay away. And lots of people can go quite solitude. It can really cause some mental health difficulties. But find communities. There are brilliant charities out there like Iman, uh, like the Inclusive Mosque Initiative, where you find like-minded people who are navigating their spirituality, their sexuality at the same time. There are some really good books out there as well. Homosexuality and Islam is an interesting read. I would say that's how where, where I found solace and where I found community, and that really helped me. So that would be my advice. So I just want to touch on your career. Sure. It looks like you've got a mix of communications, marketing, mm-hmm. you're an account exec. So can you just walk us through? Yeah, so I, so I worked in Germany for a bit as part of a placement year, and I worked for the Financial Times Deutschland. 
And there I did, I did a podcast at the time about being British in Germany and, and how the German language worked and what it was like being English or British. And I loved the media. I, f I find the media really fascinating and the influence that it has on the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see others. And I wanted to be part of that in some way. Came into the professional world during a downturn in 2010. And that wasn't a simple or easy time to go in and become a, a journalist. But I, so I landed at a communications agency uh, called Incredible. And it was an incredible place to work. I worked with brilliant people. We did a combination of consultancy around uh, communications, around events, film, digital, in its really nascent stage. And it was a really formative experience. And I think about people today in their first jobs and how difficult it is, I think, to, to form bonds virtually. But at that point, I think I formed some really amazing bonds with great people. So I left there and wanted to go somewhere bigger. Went to a communications agency called Fleischmann Hillard, which is now in the UK called Fleischmann Hillard Fishburne. They're part of the Omnicom group. And that was brilliant. I won new accounts, was doing great work. We set a world record for one of our clients. It was just a really great time. And I think sometimes in businesses, when people are considering what their jobs are or what they want to do, they don't always, or I didn't always factor in the luck or the timing. Like it was just a really great place to be great teams at the time. We were riding a wave. And I think as I got to the end of that, and then I, I came out towards the end of that career, the end of that uh, job, I thought I want to go in-house. So when you work in the marketing world, there's a lot of agency and clients working together. I thought going in-house would be a new experience for me. And maybe it would give me a bit more control. At the, at the agency side, you always felt a bit of, like I can never really sign anything off. So this is your move to Triptease? This was my move to Triptease. Yeah. So uh, a SaaS company run by two brilliant people, um, Charlie and James Osmond, brothers. And I went in as head of marketing and then uh, went into a business development role. The company scaled from eight to 60 people in, in two years, went through a few rounds of funding, and they are a travel tech business. So they help hotels to regain direct bookings. Really, really interesting uh, in the model of that. I, I think there is where I got this uh, appetite for growth and business and, and building something. I loved working for entrepreneurs and thought I want to do something and, and I don't quite know what, but it was at that time where I was really leaning into how different I felt in the workplace to some of my peers or some of my friends. Thinking In, in what sense? I think it's when I started to look around leadership tables that I was getting to at, at that point. So the next job I went to was, was Weber Shamwick. And I looked around and went, no one really looks like me. Therefore, should I be here? Those sorts of questions uh, arose. And then other questions of, do I fit in here? Do I belong here? So I had that happening in my experience internally. And then I had clients saying to me, how do we understand these audiences and these communities? So often people would say, how do we understand? At that time, a lot of people said the word BAME. People still say it today. We can go into language till however long we want to talk about it. But how do I understand black and Asian and minority ethnic audiences? How do I understand lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans audiences? I was volunteering for Pride in London at the same time as their director of comms. Had lots of things going on that just said to me, maybe I could do something about this. And so I went and spoke to my very first boss and said, I've just had this idea. He became a mentor, you know, have mentors in life because they really, really help. And he said, well, you know, I'll back you and why don't you do it? So that's where the Unmistakables came from. So set that up in 2018. And we help clients to navigate the world of equity, diversity, inclusion in a way that helps them 
create better cultures in a way that helps them build better brands and better businesses. And it's all backed by insights and data. So you are an expert in this field, obviously, and I'd like to tap into that knowledge just a little bit. Sure. But first, I'd love to talk about your ED&I framework name, Inside Out Inclusion. Yeah, apt for your podcast. I know, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where that name come from? So as we, as we built the business and, and I look back, it was really about how to make inclusion work within an organisation. What are all the different levers that you have to pull? to actually embed equity and change systems. So marketing and brands and communications is certainly one area, and that's where many businesses go to, which is how do we make our advertising look more diverse? What does that look like? But it's also what happens on the inside, which is what is the reality of the experience that people have? How confident do leaders feel? What data do we have around our colleagues? What's the culture here? So we we were looking at all of these indicators and then developed this model out of that that just allows us to base what we do with our clients to say how do you get all these indicators moving in the same way some might just want to look at culture and and move some bits around there some might just want to look at campaigns but the model was built as a way to help organizations navigate this and just embed equity and inclusion into their systems i think the e and i programs when they're implemented into businesses there is the danger that you get this surge you know you get the ceo Mm -hmm. or head of department that goes we need to go in this direction yeah let's make this a priority so that happens for a couple of years and then some other priority supersedes it of course and that surge starts to dissipate a little Mm. bit Mm. how do you how do you counter that what advice would you give to others that are looking at this problem? so uh, well at the heart is is the strategy so what is an organization's strategy and where are you trying to go so i think what's important for any leader head of ceo is well where are we trying to take our business over five years ten years do we want to attract as many people as we can or the best talent that's out there once they come to work for us is it great is it a great experience do they stay with us do they grow do they leave to great uh, jobs afterwards what kind of legacy do I want to leave? All those sorts of things are happening for people. But also, do we want a brand or a business that's relevant to what, where the world is going? So if you look at where the world is going and you think about globalisation, deglobalization, how identities are shifting, what younger people are wanting, how we've got an ageing population, all of that is DEI in some way mm-hmm. because age is, is diversity, right? So I think you've got to pin it into what is happening for our business so when I talk to clients and I coach lots of CEOs uh, and C-suite members on how to be more confident around this and we work on well what's the why both for yourself as an individual and then what's the why for your business and how can you make the two work together so often it's well my why is I felt this when I was this age or something like that happened all of that plays out in work for sure but also for our business we need to double in size by that by x year so we can only do that if we sell to more people or the current people we have buy more. Now, we know in a cost of living crisis, it might be harder to do that depending on what the product is. So how are we going to do that? And we just pin it into what's going on. And that helps to overcome the surge because I think the surge often is sparked by a moment. And actually what this is, is a movement over time. And we just we encourage people to think, are you part of a movement of change of how the world's changing? Or are you just part of a moment of a spark, something that's happened on social media, which can feel like a blip and people can see, see through? So you set the representation goals. Yeah. Right. Link it to an outcome that business wants to achieve. Mm-hmm. And you're progressing along those targets. So you're doing really well. 
but you look into the detail and you see the well the issue is you know most of the people that are coming in that are meeting those targets are like middle manager mm-hmm. level or below mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you, uh, you have that we've seen that for gender for, for years and we've now seen that there's better gender representation at more senior levels it's not perfect but it takes time for that to happen so i think that's the first if you're looking for advice the first piece of advice i would give is it's going to take time so you've got to hold your nerve and keep going the second is looking at the whole employee life cycle to say well once people are in then they move up why do they get stuck is there a reason why is there a code of what it is to be a leader back to my lived experience of should i be here am i really meant to be here right. you might get people looking up and saying i don't see anyone like me up there so is that for me so you get a bit of push and, and you can pull. speak from experience there as well I can speak from experience, but also from, from colleagues that we speak to. So one thing that we do in our business is listening exercises. And that is really important for leaders today, to listen to what's going on. I think the days of just surveying and hoping that's okay, or having one-to-ones, that's still, there's a place for that. But actually doing these listening exercises, we hear people saying things like, I can't see anyone like me, so that just, I go home feeling a certain way about that. Or the person I do see doesn't necessarily represent my views, Or what does it take? You also have, in the world of any kind of transformation, you have this frozen middle, often, which is around middle management, who often are the ones that need to enable change but get stuck or frozen on how to do that. So you saw this in how digital transformation was affected years ago, which was, well, we don't know how and why. You had younger people coming in saying, well, you need to do it. You had leaders saying, well, it's important to our business. And you had people in the middle a bit stuck to go, well, how do we grapple with it? What does it mean for me? How do we make the change? It's exactly the same today. So that, that middle and unlocking that and unfreezing that is, is going to take a long time, especially when it comes to pushing people up and through into board level positions. So what does true inclusivity in a company look like for you? So the look like is an interesting term there, right? So we, are, uh, we have a model around inclusion and how you measure it. And it's, it's not just something that you look at or looks like, I think lots of people get stuck there. Diversity can certainly, and representation, as you said, you can look at things and go, does it look representative of who we want to be, the city that we're in, the society that we're in? Inclusion is more a feeling, how people feel, what are the rhythms and systems in place, what does ways of working look like here, what are the behaviours that we see play out? That's what inclusion is about. So I could never tell you, well, inclusion looks like this. It's actually inclusion feels like this. And it's people feeling like they can be themselves, they can thrive, they can do the best, they can rise to the top if they want to, they can be great in the middle if they want to, they can be junior and not feel like they're the only. Those sorts of feelings are what plays out. Where you want to go next is, well, what does equity feel like? And actually, how is the structure being changed for people who need adjustments around who they are or what they bring to work? So inclusion feels like something. And we're we're developing a a measurement thing. We're going to talk a bit about that in the coming months slash next year um, of actually how do you measure for inclusion. By contrast, what does tokenism look like for you? Can you spot it and what can be done about it? So so tokenism is really divisive, I think, because lots of people hear tokenism and say or, or assume it's a bad thing. And we, on our podcast called The Speak Easier, we interviewed someone called Lisa Power. And Lisa Power helped to set up Stonewall in the UK. She's a big LGBT rights activist. She consulted on It's a Sin, that great show that was on a couple of years ago. And Lisa said, well, actually, for her, as a lesbian woman, she was often in rooms as the only 
And people were like, oh, it's the token woman, token lesbian. And she said, well, it's good that I'm there, because even if I'm, if I'm not there, that's worse. It's good that I'm there. And it got me thinking, and I think we were talking about a pinball machine. And you go, well, actually, if you put your token in, or the ball into a pinball machine, and it's rattling around the system, making some changes, scoring some points, doing some things, is that an example of good tokenism? Because you're in the system, at least. You're not out of the system. So it's really divisive. Tokenism, at, at its worst, can make people feel really pressured. They're the only ones there. They're hired for the wrong reasons or hired because people want to look a certain way. I'm using air quotes. People probably can't see that. But it can make change if it's sustained over time and there's a contract in place around that. I was looking at some research and there's some statistics on this. Like 72% of the LGBTQ community believe their representation in advertising is tokenistic. Mm, mm, yeah. I, I, big problem. I, it, well, it is, it is a big problem because it's very hard in an advert to get authenticity right and get that across. So what happens in an, in an ad process, and this is something we do in our business, we break down the process. How does it work? Often diversity representation gets thought of in the casting moment. So we've built a storyline. We've got a 30 second advert. We want to get different people in there and they make make choices. Right. So that can be where tokenistic approaches happen because it's, well, we'll just swap out skin colours or sexualities or who's holding hands. Fine, that happens. To overcome that, you've got to put people into the process. So you've got to have LGBT people who feel comfortable working in advertising, who can thrive in their agencies, who can influence their clients, whose clients are able to then influence their bosses to say why well, it's a good thing. All that systems and process change is what needs to happen for that stat to reduce. People will always feel like it's tokenistic, particularly in advertising, because you've got such a small window of time that you can process the creative or the visuals that you're seeing. But once the, pros once the systems behind it start to change, that number will go down, I believe. You set up the unmistakables when? 2018. What's your key objectives? So we are here to accelerate inclusion. That's what we stand for. That's what we say. So my key objective in the business is to do that, to work with our clients to accelerate that to embed it into their systems and processes we're living in a climate at the moment where spend is being squeezed people are thinking about what they're doing the government in the uk is putting a spotlight on diversity training thinking about what that is so our mission is well how do you keep accelerating this in the macro context how do you work with leaders to make sure that this doesn't become a trend that falls off after a month or a year that's one of my key objectives the, the other is to create a culture where people can belong and thrive. We're working really hard on our culture. Don't have it perfect, as with every business. There are always things we can do better. We're trying all the time. We're listening to people as much as we can. We're making adjustments as we can. We're navigating growth through really uncertain and complicated times. So there's definitely something around that. And then I think it's the third bit for me, and it's quite personal, just based on who I am, is to break this whole thing down. So... Lots of people talk to me about how baffling or confusing it can all feel. And that turns up in little sayings. So you hear people say, well, I don't know what I can say these days. It's all very confusing. You can't say what you want anymore. feels like we're being policed. X, Y, Z. So it's getting into that and saying, well, why do you feel that? How do we unpick that? How do we demystify what this is all about? And really, it's all about society and how people and culture is changing. That's what Edie and I are really about. Um, so that's my third objective. I think on the flip side is also is people being able to 
embrace their differences. Yeah. How would you encourage people to do that? though? <laughs> yeah. Well, I could ask you, like, so for, for you, with you, your upbringing, you grew up in a, in a household speaking Arabic. Did, did, did you embrace that? Initially, I resented it mm. because I grew up in a Western culture, so I couldn't understand the other side so mm. much. But as I grew older, I realised that they could sit by side, side by side, right? And with that, I just think that comes with experience and age and learning. And uh, that's how I've adopted an approach to say, yeah, you know, my family's from Jordan. I was brought up in the UK. Yeah. And it works really well. Yeah. Um, and this is what this podcast is about as well. Yeah. And it's okay to embrace your differences. You can actually, it's not a hindrance. Mm. And despite your hardships or anything that you've gone through, through in your life, you yeah. can go out and you can succeed as well. Yeah. And and I, so that that's how you, that's how I encourage people to embrace their differences was just to talk about it so that doesn't have to just be about skin tone or sexuality it can be about other things and that's why I think the point about media where I started from of how fascinated I am by media because that casts it casts a light on well what does the world look like and what do we see around us and who you know we saw this around 9-11 you know what do terrorists look like how does that then play through and what people perceived how does it then translate into film so that can be as as different as how do you embrace in in introversion so there's an assumption or stereotype that as you succeed or as you move up a business and you become a leader you have to be extroverted everyone's got this image of the extroverted yeah, leader because yeah, it's what we see exactly, as politician. Yeah. number of people who i'm talking to at the moment who say i'm actually really introverted covid's made me a bit more introverted i really liked it i, I realized i get energy from being alone or resetting, but how do I then succeed in my job? So it's back to my experience of someone sat around a leadership table thinking, well, everyone here is really presenting as very extroverted. It could all be a lie. And actually, people need time to reset. And the only way to do that is to create a psychologically safe space in a leadership context or in a company context for someone to say that. So, Wes, have you ever had a, a conversation with your leadership team to say, well, this is what it was like growing up in a household where I heard Arabic. Did everyone else have experiences like this? Just so you get to know each other a bit better. Yeah, that, that's a really great point. Yeah, in our company, you know, we'll celebrate Eid, we'll celebrate Diwali, etc. Yeah. And I think that's really important to to have that from the ground up. Mm. So that everyone has a say. Yeah. And you mentioned so being creating this psychologically safe environment. Mm. There's a great book. I think the author is Amy Edmondson. Okay that talks about this. Right. And I think that's absolutely key yeah. to being able to implement a, a successful DE&I process. Well, right? well, it's exactly that. And then and lots of people then say, well, what's the, you know, why? Why is this important? And you think, well, actually, when you have that, then people feel less fearful. They're happy to talk up when it comes to mistakes that are being made. They're happy to let the shoulders down, makes the business more innovative sparks new ideas, sparks new thinking, creates better business. Like, it's all linked together. So if you have that, and often people don't want to invest in that because there's been a model of how work should be or how work is or what you leave at home and what you take to work, which the pandemic showed us we just don't have that luxury anymore. We take work home and we take home to work and we've blurred that and, and I, we're never going to go back to this I leave and I go. I think for people in 
retail, for example, you still have that where you've still got places of work that where you need to be together. But predominantly in the services industry, that's moved on. That links in quite nicely. What are your five top practical tips for employers or companies when trying to create an inclusive environment? Yeah, uh, five five top tips. How long have you? How long have you got? <laughs> so, the, my five top tips. The first would be to establish the why. So, why does it matter for the business? What's at the heart of it? What's how's it linked to the organisational strategy? Don't untangle it from that. Put it in with that and say, well, how is this going to help us meet? our objectives. So if I was talking to you, we'd be saying, well, you're targeting growing businesses or entrepreneurs. Do we understand the depth of experience of all entrepreneurs around the world? Do we know what that feels like? Do we want to have a say in it? Do you want to see more people like you who are setting up businesses? Because we know that you need certain things to set up a business, which can be access, which can be layers of privilege, which can be time, things that certain communities don't have. So you weave it in and go, what do we want to stand for? What do we want to be? That'd be my first tip. The second would be if you're going to look inside to think about how equipped are leadership teams and individuals for this? What level of confidence do they have around it? How can you build some of that? What does that look like? There's programs. We do work around that. Then you look at what's the culture. Do we really have a read on how it feels? My MD, Simone, talks about the mood music in a, in a, in a business. Do you really know what the mood music is there? Assess that. Find that out if you're leading for this or you, if you have a say or an ability to do that. The fourth would be to look at how does this translate into how we show up in the world, what this means for our products, what our, what our business looks like. And the, th- the fifth would be to just look at a plethora of resources that are out there. We were talking about TechNation before we walked into this room. We helped to develop a DNI toolkit with them a couple of years ago, really for small businesses in the tech space who are thinking about DNI. It's a self-serve toolkit. You can go in, you can look at what are the different types of data that I need to capture, how do I think about this across all facets of a business. So toolkits like that, resources like that, consultancy like, like ours can help to then embed that and weave that through. Just don't, don't do it alone. I hear lots of people who feel like they have to take it on and do it on their own because of who they are and how they feel. And actually this is about working together with others, with other resources and what's out there already. So what's the common obstacle then that you come across when doing diversity work with companies and clients? One common obstacle is what what we call centering. So where is where is it centered? So that plays through in a com- couple of ways. So whose voices are we centering? Do are we centering the underrepresented, the marginalized, the people who are who aren't in the business at the moment, the ones we're struggling to reach? So we do uh, I mentioned we do insights, data and research. And when we do that, it's about how to play voices through in a way that get heard, that are able to make change. That's about listening and reframing rather than saying, well, why aren't they saying what we want them to say? You've got to take a different mode around that. And then the other is about who is centred in terms of creating the change. So is it an individual in a business that feels like they have to do this by themselves? Or is it more about a change programme that people are working on? When it's more the change programme, easier, much easier to do. (laughs) When it's just someone who wants to do it by themselves and isn't energizing and organizing then that is an obstacle because then it doesn't it doesn't live and permeate through the organizational system do you think big brands have power when it comes to changing attitudes towards inclusive behaviors i think they have the power they are part of how we see the world so i'll give you an example many years ago and i think this is when i was thinking about the business i walked around a shopping center and i looked around and i said well none of these adverts feature somebody who looks like me 
and I've grown up in this country, right? We talked about growing up in London. And I thought, well, why is that? Then you look into it and you realise well, how the decisions get made. There's data available on South Asian representation, sure. et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, big brands have an, a power on what you see and what you experience around you. But so too does film. So too does media. It, it's all an ecosystem working together. I think brands can't understate their power. They also can't overstate that they're part of something bigger. But yeah, I, I certainly see it. And, and I see it all the time, right? In some of the advertising campaigns that we've worked with clients on, we worked on a, a brand advert for, for a charity and it just scored really highly on people seeing themselves feeling differently about this brand. The advert, advert went on and won awards that made people feel great. We did uh, a piece of work with uh, Tesco. You talked about how your staff celebrate Eid. So we did a piece of work with Tesco and their advertising agency, BBH. And BBH had this idea around showing an iftar table during an advert. They, they bought an out-of-home placement for about half an hour. And over time, it was an empty table. And as the sun set, the food appeared on the table. And it was brilliant. People stopped in their tracks. They looked at it. They watched it. Got lots of press pickup and PR. It's won a few awards. But what that did, and when I spoke to the client about, well, what, what was the success of this? She said, our Muslim colleagues just feel like this is a place for them and where they want to work. And at a time where there's a great resignation, at a time where people aren't feeling included, particularly Muslims don't always feel included, people turned around and went, I feel included here. I feel like a Tesco. Tesco, of all people, can see me. And the work we did there was about how to make it more authentic, how to make sure that even the table setting didn't look like an Eid table, but looked like an Iftar table. How do you get that level right? How do you bring in different cultural influences? So not too Indian, not too of another country. We, we played all that through and it was, it was brilliant, but it's proof that brands can t- make a difference. That must have given you such a sense of pride. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it, it felt authentic because we've worked with BBH for a number of years, there's such an appetite to do better work, to, to push for better creativity. The client really wanted to learn and take risks. But, you know, we were, we were having calls. I remember this Monday morning call, and it, we were talking about the colour of the cutlery, and we were talking about the sophistication of the biryani. <laughs> and, you know, Asma Khan, who loves biryani yeah. <laughs> and, and and talks about it, you know, we were, is it is it too over the top? Would people really be eating that? You know, where would the dates be on the table? These were all lovely little things that we were talking about. And it was it felt at the time, you know, when you just you feel like you're creating art, you feel like you're creating something beautiful. So when the end result came out, it just completely it completely took everyone's breath away. But we felt like we were creating because we could be. We had Muslim consultants, a Muslim photographer who just felt really included in the set. And it doesn't have to be that for everything. You don't have to go, well, okay, only Muslims need to work on this. It was just as much non-Muslims learning and and co-creating. But it was it was brilliant. And, and, you know, I think BBH are really happy with it. Tesco are happy with it. So who knows what we'll do next year. That's great. I'm I'm really happy for you as well because as you're as you're talking, you know, you've just got this burst of energy. <laughs> so you're clearly passionate about what you do, and if you combine your expertise with your passion, that's a winning formula. Thanks. I want to move on now to LGBT issues in education because mm. I know you've had involvement in this and spoken out in the past about the importance of LGBTQ education. Mm. How do you feel about it now being mandatory in the UK? So I feel like it's it's a positive step and we're seeing in the US 
what's happening if you go the other way. I'm a trustee of AKT, which is an LGBT plus homelessness yeah. char- charity. And the number of young people going through the system and experiencing any kind of homelessness is high and shouldn't be where it is. And so to have education in schools, to have acceptance of of that, it is important. It's, again, one block of many things that have to work together in the big kind of Lego wall of life. But it's a step in the right direction. I think at the moment, as we're seeing in the UK, there's an uproar around drag queens in libraries and, you know, what does that mean and is it perversion? And then you look into where's that being funded from and what's happening there. You can go into a bit of a hole with that. But I think broadly speaking, it's important. We know what Section 28 did for a lot of LGBT people decades ago. So we've got to get to a place where people can feel accepted in all walks and forms of life. What are your hopes for the future? My hopes would be that it just becomes usual. And I use the word usual rather than normal because normal is really, uh, it's quite binary. Something is normal, abnormal, Sure, right? It's got a judgment on it. It was usual. And you go, okay, it's usual. Like, do people come out? Maybe not. Maybe parents don't wait for this day where a child feels like they have to say this. The child just goes, this is who I'm dating or seeing. Uh, and that becomes a bit more usual. I'm certainly seeing that around the parents that I speak to, um, who are saying that their children are in different places. The schools that they're going to have different networks. The, the parents have networks. That's that's lovely. You know, I didn't, we didn't have that growing up. It's such a different time. So my hopes would be that, that things just become a bit more usual. Okay, so why do you think it's important to teach younger generations about LGBTQ communities? Uh, well, when when I volunteered for Pride, we did um, a few projects into the history of Pride and that, where it stemmed from. Yeah. So if you didn't know that history, as I didn't before I uh, did that volunteering, I think Pride's a big party. One, one day a year, everyone just gets together in London, rainbows, isn't it great? And then you look into, well, in 1969, a black trans activist called Marsha P. Johnson threw a shot glass or a brick, they don't know, back at the police who were storming the Stonewall Inn. And it became the Stonewall Riots. And then every year that's commemorated and that's Pride. So Pride stemmed from a protest. Not just a protest, but one started started by one of the most marginalised communities out there. So you look at that and say, well, we need to know that history and where it came from because people were fighting for their rights just as people are fighting for their rights today. So that's why it's important on a rational, logical level. You need to know that history, right? You can only know your history to then know your future. You've got to know your roots with two O's to know your roots with O-U-T-E-S. And the second is that it's ever-evolving. So one of the conversations that we've been having is around the word queer. So we hear a lot of young people talk about how they're queer the queer community, I would generally say there's people under 30 might categorise themselves as queer as opposed to one of the letters in what Lisa Power calls the alphabet soup of LGBTQIAAPP and it keeps going. (laughs) Uh, So many people will say, well, I'm queer rather than I'm bi or I'm poly or I'm pan because it's more widely used. When you talk to people over 50 or over 45 even, sometimes even over 40, well, when I grew up, queer was the same as the P word or the N word in terms of the bashing and the abuse that I faced at school or on the streets. So I don't want to reclaim that word. I want to use gay because that's what I fought for. So it's important to know that even within the community because then 
ostensibly companies say, well, maybe we'll just have a queer group and you might alienate older people just based on their lived experience, right? What they heard, that trauma that played out. So it's important to talk about that and unpick the language because we found, in, we did a study last year called Diversity and Confusion and we did a research report because we found people are broadly quite confused and we found that I think it was 51% of people are afraid to say the word queer. Younger people look at that and say, well, why is that? Older people look at that and say, I get why. 40% of people are scared to say the word black in the workplace. Again, because of how politicised the term is and what can you and can't you say. So that's why education is really important, because it gives you the confidence to have this sort of conversation. Do you think we're already seeing a shift, though, in perspective within teenagers and young adults? I, I do. I think we are seeing a shift. I think the media reporting we see would imply that, yes, there's lots of Ipsos reports, YouGov reports that come out that um, people are more fluid at younger ages. That that generally tends to be the case generationally anyway. Um, but I think younger people are becoming more accepting in part because their access to information, news, media is not contained to gatekeepers anymore. Mm-hmm. So the rise of TikTok, Instagram we are seeing things from other communities or from our own spaces that before were not being shared. So I think that is driving a level of acceptance. You can't understate, and something that we talk about and Simone talks about with me is, you know, what's the shadow side? So there is always going to be unacceptance. I think it would be very broad brush to say all young people are accepting, no matter what. Um, But I think generally speaking, because of different factors, there is a new wave of acceptance um, that will hopefully continue. Last question on LGBTQ communities. Um, How can they be more accurately represented in advertising campaigns? So inclusion throughout the process. So consulting with LGBT people before the casting decisions Mm -hmm. of what's the stories that we're telling, what are the human truths that we're trying to play through. So, you know, if you're thinking about a storyline for an advert, you could think about, well, Often people will go to we'll, we'll go to the coming out storyline, right? We will show that in our advert. But why not just show something every day that uh, a, a same-sex couple might be going through, as opposed to that trauma-informed moment, whether it's celebratory or not? That would certainly help. You can do that through consulting and, and and through talking to communities. You can do that through hiring, making sure that you've got people who feel like they can bring that into work if they want to, uh, and if it's psychologically safe to do so and I think it's also to unpick some of the letters within it so how do you accurately portray bisexuality for example quite hard to do I've done some judging for a group called Outvertising I would highly recommend checking out they are lobbying for better LGBT inclusion in advertising and through that judging process we were looking at some of the stereotypes that people rely on to showcase bisexuality some of the stereotypes that play out or fear that plays out when it comes to portraying trans people accurately. So looking at those kind of consultancy approach, hiring approach, and then groups like advertising that are driving for change. That's wonderful. Just got a couple of closing questions. Sure. Um, What advice would you give your younger self? (laughs) Um, It will all be all right. (laughs) (laughs) It will all be all right. I think, um, yeah. I could go into that, but just, yeah, it, it will all be fine. Don't leave us hanging there. You've well, got to explain I, that. I, I, think, um, I think it's really easy. Well, it was really easy for me to overthink things. It still is. I'm mm-hmm. a massive overthinker. 
Um, but just to have that reassurance of it will all be fine. Um, when when I started the business, I did loads of reading around. You know, what does it take? And I'm sure you're you're the same as a as a business owner. And it's luck, vitality, and reputation. Those are the three things. And that's not my words. That's Daniel Priestley. He wrote that in Entrepreneur's Revolution. But that thing about luck, like it will all be fine, and that has come from I think my Islamic upbringing mm-hmm. of it'll be fine. Like it's meant to be the way it's meant to be. Let it go. Detach from the outcome. So I tell myself that. And if I could tell myself, my younger self, that I probably would have made different choices, but don't regret a thing. <laughs> okay. And uh, what's next for you? This year, it's um, looking at where, where we go next as a business. What does that look like? Working with some clients on some really amazing projects, helping them to really shift their organisation. So there's there's a lot around that. We're looking into diversity and confusion 2.0. You know, where are people today? What do they want to be looking at? So that will be coming soon um and then going into the new year um we'll be announcing a few more things that's worth looking at our website for exciting where, where can people find you uh, so the unmistakables.com there's no e in the middle so the unmistakables you can google that or me uh when we are at underscore unmistakables on uh, twitter and instagram and then we're also on linkedin that's great well that's a lovely way to end this episode thanks so much for coming on Asad you're a really inspiring guy and I'm loving what you're doing in the DE&I space well thanks for having me on with.